Good morning, everybody. You know, my, my dad is probably one of the, the smartest guys that, that I, I know. Um, he did very well in school, um, better than I did. But uh, one of the things that, that I, I greatly appreciated was he, he told me uh, his, his secret to studying. And it's one of those things that he tells it to you and, and you think, okay, I, I get that, but I could never quite figure out how he made it work. You know, I was the guy who, who stayed up until, you know, 3, 4 a.m. cramming for the, the test, you know. It's like, you know, there, there, there's something coming and I should have started a while ago, but, but I, I need to start studying now and, and I'm not going to remember this. So I, I get my little crib sheets or whatever, you know, and I just try to get all the information. I'm on the bus, you know, just trying to cram in all this information. And my dad said, you, you, you shouldn't do it that way. And I was like, well, okay, easy for you to say. And he goes, what, what, what you do is you, you study up until the night before. Then you go to the gym, you play basketball until you're really tired. You go home and you just sleep, wake up and go take the test. And I remember him telling me that thinking that seems to make sense, but no, <laughs> like I, I can't imagine doing, I can't imagine not cramming the night before a test because that's just the way that I learned to do things. You know, you, you just, it, I, I learned I need more information. I need more time. I don't have enough time to get this information and I'm going to try to cram it all in that I can. And, and what my dad was teaching me inadvertently was the Sabbath. He was telling me that there's a rhythm to this stuff that works better for your body and your soul and your mind. There, there's, a, there's a method to this that if you get this, it's going to work well. And it, it's not just in terms of, of learning. You know, I, I like to smoke meats. We have a, what they call it an ugly drum smoker, which is this big old drums <laughs> that you, you just fill with smoke and you put meat in there. And the guy who, who made this for me, the guy who gave this to me said, uh, if you're looking, you're not cooking. <laughs> the idea is, you know, what you want to do when you're smoking is you put it in there, you set everything up and you walk away. Because what you want to do is check and, and poke at it with a stick, you know, and, and see how it's doing and, and, and maybe baste it some more, maybe add some more stuff. And he's like, no, 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 no. None of that's going to work. You got to set it up and then you got to leave it alone. And you pull meat off too and you got to let it rest before it's actually good. And, and this is not the way I think that I should be doing things. Like if I'm cooking, I need to be active. I need to be doing something for it. And this is probably one of the reasons why I also can't grow houseplants. Because they need something, right? You gotta rotate them. You gotta give them fertilizer. You gotta give them water. And and I think every houseplant I've killed, I've killed by root rot. Because you, you just want to keep tending to this thing. It's like th there's something I gotta do to make sure this thing is healthy and it's growing. Why are you dying? Here, have more water. Oh no, it's dying even worse. Here, have more water. And it just doesn't work out for me. This idea of, of Sabbath is is so around us. And taking this time to understand that it's anathema to most of the way that we have learned about living our lives, whether it's learning or, or cooking or, or tending our plants or how we go to our jobs, um, Sabbath is not the way we see it. So we're taking this series to go through um, Sabbath. I, I've got this title slide. I didn't update it from last time, so William's going to be the one who hates this the most because Leah pointed out to me that, yes, here is a, I thought it was a great representation of Sabbath. And Leah goes, why isn't the Sabbath a rest note? <laughs> oh, that's a real missed opportunity. So it, it shouldn't be a rest note. Uh, I'm probably not going to update that. So you're going to have to deal this whole time with a title slide that has the seventh note just being raised up. But deal with it. Um, so what we're going to be talking about this morning, though, is the Sabbath as a command. Uh, we talked about last week how the Sabbath relates to work. The Sabbath only makes sense in relation to work. But today we're going to focus on how the Sabbath is a command. Um, before I jump into this, I just want to acknowledge that unjust punishment is actually a very, very serious problem. You know, minorities and the poor are struck with more severe punishments for the same crimes. I don't think this is a new phenomenon, but this is what we see in, when we look at the world around us. It's unfair. Um, things are not just in the way that they should be, but I'm going to try to keep it a little bit light in the beginning, so I'm going to throw out a, a few unexpected um, crimes and punishment things for you here. So this is just uh, two truths and a lie, okay? Two truths and a lie. So these are all based on North Carolina laws, all right? And, and your job by vote is to tell me which one of these is the lie, all right? So North Carolina laws. Elephants may not be used to plow cotton fields. It's against the law to sing off-key. And bingo games may not last more than three hours, and alcohol is not allowed at bingo games. Which one of those is not true? Bingo. 
Bingo? Anybody? Anybody for the elephants? Anybody for elephants? I got three elephants. Anybody for singing off key? One, two, three, four, five, six. More on that one. Bingo. Is bingo the biggest one? Bingo's okay. It's about, it's almost evenly split between these. The answer is the bingo one because they may not last more than five hours. <laughs> I tricked you a little bit. It is it is illegal to sing off key in the state of North Carolina. So we're, we are in, in trouble here. Elephants, you cannot use your elephant to plow a cotton field, and a bingo game can... <laughs> we're in trouble. And bingo games cannot last more than five hours, which is insane. Who wants to play bingo for that long? All right, one, here, here's, here's one more for you. Uh, women are required to wear clothes that total 12 yards. If a man and woman who aren't married go to a hotel and register themselves as married, then according to state law, they are actually married. Or you cannot collect your own reward money. I think that one's pretty fun. All right, which one of these? Number one? Anybody number one? Yes. I got four, five, six, seven. Oh, that's good. Getting growing popularity. Anybody for the hotel and getting married? I got three for that one. And anybody for collecting your own reward money? Two for that one. All right, the answer is A. Women are required to wear clothes that total 16 yards. I tricked you again. <laughs> the other ones are, if you don't want to have a big wedding ceremony, just go to a hotel and register yourselves as married. You are covered. Um, hopefully that's going to come off the book soon because that's really weird. <laughs> it's illegal to do that. Too. You can't get away with it. Okay, the final one, you can get a DWI on a horse. All right. Visiting the dead after midnight is illegal. And... Visiting a forest city requires you to call town hall before you enter. Anybody? The second one, visiting the dead after midnight is illegal. Anybody can get a DWI on a horse? All right, the answer is C, because you only have to register with forest city if you enter by car. You can walk into the city, fine, but if you're gonna drive into forest city, you have to register with them first. What a weird world we live in, and what an unusual state. So this is a bit lighthearted. Yeah, these are actual laws on the books, but, you know, they're not really enforced. You know, this isn't the sort of thing that you can really get into trouble for singing off-key. But this idea that the people learn from a very early age, things aren't fair. You know, that, that the system somehow doesn't work the way that I think it should. The things that I think are right and good people, you know, get in trouble for the things that are, are bad. People seem to get away with doing these things. Kids learn this from a very early age. That's not fair is something you hear often, you know, whether it's the games or the punishments that you give them or the amount of ice cream in their bowls, you know, it, that's not fair is like one of the first phrases they learn. In March of 2005, a New York judge, Robert Restiano, was presiding. During the proceedings, an unknown cell phone went off. Nobody made motions to claim it or to silence the device. So Restiano pointed out the sign post in the courtroom prohibiting cell phones and he grew frustrated with the courtroom's negligence. And finally he ordered the device to be brought forward or he would send the entire courtroom to jail. Nobody complied. So the disgruntled judge arrested 46 people <laughs> who were subsequently thrown in jail cells that became rather cramped with so many occupants. So 14 of them had to be shipped to another jail to accommodate this. Um, the first jail ran out of room. Not fair. It's not my cell phone. I have nothing to do with this. And I've been arrested now because somebody's cell phone went off in this courtroom. And I think that we have to understand at some point that we feel that. We feel that's just not fair. And we, we learned this from an early age that, that, what do you say? Well, life's not fair, right? And that, that's our comeback to this is life's not fair. And what I want to talk about is I think a, a common objection when you read scripture, is we encounter this teaching about the Sabbath, we, we encounter this command of the Sabbath, more aptly, we see the consequence for breaking the Sabbath, and we say, that can't be fair, that can't be right. The scripture says, capital punishment for those who break the Sabbath, and we don't talk about this in church often because it's like, well, what, what do we do with that? How do we reconcile that? How do we see this as, as, as a good God? How do we see any of these laws in the Old Testament and their application today? And we say, well, this is good. This is right. 
So why is this a command to begin with and not just a, a teaching? Teaching on the Sabbath makes sense. You know, here's a better way to live your life. Here's how I think you should live your life. And you see somebody do it and you see that it works well. I hear how my dad studies. I, I see how the, the smoked ribs come off on this guy's, you know, smoker. And, and I think that's a better way. I should do it that way. And a teaching seems to suffice. But what we have with the Sabbath is a command. It's a command, not a suggestion, not an opinion, not, not an offering, not something that you should consider, but it's a command. Exodus 20 is where we find this. It's found in the Ten Commandments, and that alone makes this a very big deal. This is what it says, Exodus 20. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's number four on the list. It's the only one with an exposition, the only one with an explanation, with a story, with a history. The first three commandments are all about God. It's all about keeping him holy and, and, and keeping him kind of in that place and respecting him and understanding who he is. The last few are all about the way we relate to each other and the way that, that we, we should be in society together. And right in the middle of those, you have the Sabbath. This idea of how we are to be with God, how to keep him as holy, but also how to interact with each other around us. It's right in the middle of this point. It has this wonderful location showing that that's where it belongs. And I think for most of us, when we think about being good people, or we might say, well, I, I try to be a good Christian, we, we think, like, I can do the Ten Commandments. Like, those are, those are pretty good. I don't kill is really what we mean. Like, I, I have not yet killed anybody. I've wanted to, but I have not yet. And, and generally, I'm pretty good about the other ones. I try to watch my tongue. I try to not be jealous. Like, I, I don't steal often. I stole as a kid, but, you know, that, that was just a phase I grew through. You know, and, and we just write these things off, and we say, I'm a pretty good person. I follow the Ten Commandments. But whenever I asked this last week, who here takes the Sabbath? Not one person said, did anybody take a Sabbath this week? There we go. And I know you did. <laughs> Got two. All right. It's hard. It's hard to take a Sabbath, but it's one of these commands, not a teaching, not a suggestion. It made the list of 10 saying, this is what you do. Not, not what I think you should do, not consider this, not give it your best shot and see if you, can, if you don't like the way that it makes you feel at the end of the day. It's a command. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Stop your work. Put it down and say no to it. I actually did this week, not as well as I wanted to, but I, I, I made a, a point to intentionally say no to work. Now that there's some point in time where it's on my own time, something where I know it's outside the boundaries of, of what I want it to be, and I have to say no to work. Um, again, not as well as my wife did and as well as some others did, but, but I, I said no to work. I, like, I, I needed to put it in its place. I needed to put myself in my place. I needed to put God in his place. And that comes by saying no, setting those boundaries and honoring this and making it holy. You know, why do we command our kids to eat their vegetables? 
You know, it, it's, it's not the sort of thing where we say, you know, honey, I really think you should do that. I mean, I try that. We actually, with, with Ava, we've tried every technique we could possibly think of, you know, not to much fruit, uh, no pun intended, because it's vegetables, it doesn't work. Um, but, you know, we, we command our kids to eat your vegetables. We command them to, to do these things. And, and I, I had somebody who told me about, you know, you need your kids to be able to listen to you because, you know, there was this little kid, maybe three or four, went by the, the dishwasher and was, and was pulling out this big, long steak knife, you know, and this isn't a time to say, hey, honey, that's probably not safe, you know, you want to put, you know, like, put it down, and you need them to be able to put it down and, and obey and listen, because that is dangerous. What they're, what they're playing with, what they're going towards is dangerous. Commands are very important. Commands are very important. And I think that as adults, we often don't like commands. We don't like to be told what to do. You know, I'm an adult. If I want to eat ice cream for dinner, I'm going to eat ice cream for dinner. You know, I did my time as a kid, and, and now can't I just live my life the way I want to? And commands to us feel like they're infringing on our freedom, like they're taking something away from me. They're taking away my right to choose. And so I think intrinsically we have this dislike for anybody telling me what I should do, especially in America, especially in this land of the free, especially where we can say, I'm my own man. I, I can do what I want to do with my own time. There was a, a show on, on British television, on ITV, that was essentially Lord of the Flies. They took these kids, young kids, and they just put them in a house to live by themselves with no adult supervision for about a, a, a week. Boys and, and, and girls in different houses at different times. Uh, Maybe not surprise you, the boys fared worse than the girls did. <laughs> you know, but, but the boys went through just tumultuous times. The house was torn apart. There's holes and the yard was, you know, nobody was sleeping. They were hurting each other. They're fighting. The, the food wasn't made. The food was wasted. They, they ran out of food. All sorts of problems. The, the TV channel was actually sued for traumatic stress to these kids for having gone through a week without adult supervision. Which tells you something, right? They, they, they had this whole thing filmed, and they didn't interact. They didn't interfere with this, and it was bad. The kids needed to be directed. The kids needed to be told when to stop and when to go and, and when to eat and when to not do because they didn't regulate themselves. And I don't think that many of us, even though we've grown up, many of us have not yet embraced the fullness of what the Lord has called us to be in life. Many of us still need Him as Lord and Savior. In fact, I will say, all of us still need him as our Lord and Savior. And that's not a problem. That's not saying, well, if I was mature enough, I wouldn't need that. What it's saying is that's his role. I, I tell that to my kids. My, my job is to protect you. My job is to love you. My job is, is to make sure that, that you're living a good life. And I have some wisdom on how to steer that. And God's saying the same thing. God is saying that these commands are for you. They're for your benefit. The connotations are, are different for a lot of other behaviors that we want to change, you know, like if, if we're talking about the laws, the commandments we have, you know, slow down, you know, or, or, or die, <laughs> you know, that, that's essentially what it is. You know, the idea that, uh, that there's inherent danger, you know, that if you, the doctor, you go to see the doctor, he's like, you got to eat better or you're going to have a heart attack. Like that's, <laughs> you could say that's a command, like you're infringing on my right to choose my meals. It's like, well, maybe, but you really need to stop, you know, bacon sandwiches at 3 a.m. You know, it's not going well for you. Um, the Sabbath command is one that was given in both positive and negative forms, and this is actually a really important deal. Uh, if you look at Exodus 16, it says it this way, six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Remain each of you in this place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So this is whenever the, the manna was, was being given to the Israelites. So this is before the Ten Commandments. This is before they were given that law. The Sabbath was still ordering their lives. The Sabbath was still this rhythm that the Lord was trying to instill in them. He was still leading them into this. They didn't have the law yet. They didn't have the command yet. But he's still teaching them there's a rhythm. Whether you have the law or not, God's provision, God's method, God's order, there's something you have to understand. So with the manna, it says this, So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on this ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? 
So even here, before the law was given, even here, when he only had the voice of God, the Spirit of God speaking and leading through leadership, it was understood the Sabbath matters. Keep it holy. Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That's why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one's to go out. So people rested on the seventh day. It's given in this positive, don't go out. Don't work. Stay here. Enjoy what the Lord has given to you. Be blessed in this. It's, it's both positive and negative. And it's because we, we often need that, that correction. We often understand, don't do this, but yes, do this. The Sabbath day was set apart and it was filled and blessed, as we talked about last week. So we see that this positive and negative again. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and in it thou shalt do no manner of work. Keep it holy. Keep it separate. Do no work. Fill these things positive and negative. Commands and laws, though, compared to teachings, have consequences, right? So I can give you a teaching, and you are free to do it or not. Sounds like not too many people did the Sabbath this week. <laughs> so, you know, you, you offer these teachings, and you're saying, like, this is what the Lord's telling us to do, and, and you hope that people are going to start changing their lives and do things. But a, a teaching is, is that. You want to learn something. You, you hope you apply it, but there's a lot of things I've learned and been taught in my days that really have made no difference on my life whatsoever. A command, though, has got to be different. A command, you know, at some point in time, it, ca- it comes due. There's a consequence for what's happening here. I think one of the biggest complaints that I've heard from non-believers levied at the Old Testament is specifically the severity of the laws. It's the death penalty for that. It's the death penalty for this. And as we said last week, it's really easy to see the Sabbath as a glorified weekend, as a, as a vacation as a holiday, and it's often abused or or subverted by just slowing down or or just changing tasks. I'm going to go from being busy in the business world to being busy in my home, and I'm going to do catch up on my laundry, and I'm going to catch up on on all these chores, and the house needs this stuff, so I'm going to take my Sabbath, and I'm going to do these things, and I'm I'm going to, you know, change focus. And we build into our lives then, like I, like I did as a student, this idea that we never have enough time. We're always cramming. We're always trying to fit in more stuff, and we're judging ourselves based on our productivity. So let me plug it again. If nothing else, find the boldness and courage this week to say no to something in work. Carve out time for yourself. And carve out time and say, no, the Lord is my Lord. I trust in him and his commands. I trust him to provide for me, not in my own two hands, not in the things that I can do myself. Exodus 31. This is uh, where the, this consequence comes from. I'm actually going to read before the, the, the part that, that's relevant to us this morning starts in verse 12, but I'm going to read a little bit before because the, the juxtaposition always strikes me. Uh, Jessica preached on this a while back. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, I have appointed Oholiab, son of Ashamash, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I've given skill to all the craftsmen to make everything I've commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony with the atonement covering on it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand, all of its its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings, all of its utensils, the basin with its stand, the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests, the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place, there to make them just as I commanded you. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath, because it's holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, 
He gave him the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. I, I love this because it is so immensely important. Right before this on the Sabbath, we have the first person in Scripture filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's craftsmanship and artisans, and it's this beautiful expression of, of making the temple this holy place. And, and we, we can see the worship and the, and the beauty, and it's so wonderful. We have him filled with this, and then we have the gift of administration given right there to help him. And we have this community being prescribed, everybody coming together to, to do their part, to make this place beautiful, to make it all that it can be. And then we have this. <laughs> you know, if you consecrate, if you desecrate the, the, the Sabbath, you're to be cut off. You're to be killed. And all of a sudden, then, like, it seems like we're going in some place, and it feels like the Lord almost took a, a turn, and, and we're like, oh, ooh, I don't know if I want to get too close to that mountain. If I, if I touch the mountain of the Lord, I'm going to be struck dead. If I, if I touch the, the cabinet, you know, what, what, what's going to happen here? And we, we see this throughout Scripture. This is, this is the problem. When the fear of the Lord comes, when we recognize who He is, there's fear. They're, they're shaking, and, and what I think our problem has become it was we are extremely comfortable with slight blasphemies, <laughs> slight desecrations, profanity, just a bit. You know, we, we've increasingly become comfortable in saying the holiness is not as separate from the secular as, as I think it should be, and, and we see this blending of things together. And all of a sudden, then those things that we want to be holy, those things that we want to keep clean, those things that we think matter— they're just a small degree away from the things of this world. And we've lost this understanding. We've lost this beauty. We've lost this appreciation on what these things were meant to be. We've lost our way with that. If you notice, I've only read from Exodus for this, but this is all throughout the Old Testament. It's actually all throughout Scripture. There are specific psalms uh, about the Sabbath. There's literature, wisdom literature, history, law. It's in the prophets as a judgment, as a promise. It's in the Gentiles and foreigners. It's in the New Testament, too. If you bring out a concordance and you look for Sabbath, you're going to see the laws given, given again, restated, exemplified, underscored throughout all of Scripture. I don't know that there's a more repeated theme throughout Scripture than Sabbath. God's rest, His promise, His hope what he's going to bring us into, what he's going to restore, what he's told us he's all about. You know, and I think that for the most part we do. We think that we're these good Christians, that we don't sin egregiously. You know, we stay away from the big ones. And I think that we mistake what the Sabbath means to God. When he says that he's made it holy, when he said that he's prescribed this for his people, when he said, this isn't a suggestion, I'm going to put this as a command in the Ten Commandments. This isn't just, hey, this will give you a better life. This, isn't how, this is how to make your meat more tender. This is how to keep your plants alive. No, this is a command because it's something holy about who he is. And if we are to be followers of his, he says, this matters for you. This is something that, that will make you holy. This is that something that will bring you from the space of the world into my space. From your time, where your time you never have enough. And your time, where you're always crammed. And your time, where you're always distracted. And come into my time. Come into my time where I have plenty, where I have power, where I have authority, where I rule and where I reign. Sabbath as a command is this understanding that we belong with him in his time. And yet we see it as this burden, we see it as this strain, we see it as this, this really hard thing that, that I don't even know if I can do it. Can I really break? But the underscoring part, I think the problem that a lot of us jump off is, is this death penalty part. And trust me, I struggle with this. You know, because it's one thing, I think, to, to see consequence and to see, yeah, cut them off from the people, but to see they must be put to death. It causes us pause. It causes stress. And maybe we just put it on that shelf and saying, well, it was a different time. It was, it, it was, a, different, it was a different context. I, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to not worry about it right now. And I feel for the most part, we just move forward. I think we like to believe that we're, we're more civilized, that we're beyond that. We're beyond the death penalty. That's a relic from another time, a less moral time. And I think that even if we agree with the death penalty in, in some form today, most of us don't feel good about sentencing somebody to death for cooking a chicken on a Saturday. Most of us feel like that's probably a bit more severe than what I'd be comfortable with. I was reading a, a book about Lincoln, and one of the things that, that really struck me about Lincoln was he had a lot of stress over the Civil War. 
Civil War was this horrific time with the, the amount of deaths and casualties around a million, million thirty-two thousand. And he had little appetite for war. He didn't want to go to war. But the thing that, that really struck me was he could have called this thing off really at any point in time. Like, he was the president. And, and the, the, the southern states that wanted to secede, he could have just said, okay, fine. You know what? It's just not worth the bloodshed. Like, uh, the amount of deaths that we're seeing here on both sides, this is horrible. We, we're, we're hurting ourselves. He could have called it off. But he persisted. He persisted because he believed that the, the best course of action for both sides, for everybody involved, was being a united country. That we could work through this together. This is a bad time, and, and I know we're not willing to, to, to come to the table right now, but we need to get through this. There was a greater goal. It matters that we get through this. And I, and I, and I saw the stress and the strain that this put him under, and, and I, I got why he believed that we needed it to fight this war, even with death at, at the door, even with all the losses. But the, the surprising thing happened, I was praying about this and the sermon and struggling with this and saying, Lord, what, what do we do with the death penalty for the Sabbath? And he, he actually took me to uh, the assassination of Lincoln. And this is by no means saying that, that I see that this is, is justifiable. But just imagining for a second that you see this cruel tyrant that led to the death of your brothers, your fathers, your uncles, your friends. There's been over a million deaths in your country, and this guy could have stopped it at any time, and he wouldn't. And you just have in you the, this, this feeling of, of despair and hatred and, and this frustration that there's no justice here, and, and why, would, why do we have to have so much death around us? And, and you get to this point of where you're just like, something has got to be done. We have our breaking point. And I think what, what I began to see is that most of us have our breaking point with something. John Grisham wrote a book called A, a Time to Kill. And it caused a lot of people in, in our nation to, to really wonder, is there a time to kill? There's this horrific story about this man and what happened to his kid, and he believed that there was, the courts were not going to bring him justice. There had to be a time to kill. He, he needed to bring justice into his own hands. He had to do something about it. So maybe you could see that, or maybe it's the death penalty at large. Sometimes you, we have to do what we have to do. Or maybe it's the killing of, of a terrorist abroad, bringing into current affairs. Or, or just in, in war, saying that, you know, sometimes this is the course that we have to take. J.R. Tolkien has a, a quote that I, I've always loved because it speaks to me of the broken world we find ourselves in. This is a man who had been through war and saw death, and he says, Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. You know, I'm, I'm amazed at all the, the movies and the ways that we've glorified violence and accepted it. Uh, in a way that, that makes almost no sense. We were watching Jack Ryan, um, and, you know, he's this analyst, you know, who has this history a, as a soldier, and he doesn't like to kill. He doesn't want to kill or anything, but then his, his, brent, his, his, brent, his best friend, his brother in, in arms that he had fought with, um, he, he was killed abroad, and so he picked up his arms, and he's going to go, and he's going to fight for this, and what, what happens is, you know, you see him struggling, you know, but then he starts killing, <laughs> just, you know, there's a guard, he's dead, there's a guard, he's dead, and, and like, he's just getting this body count, 20, 30, 40, 50, until you get to a character whose story we know, and then it's a moral conflict, you know, and the way that we have this hypocrisy about, you know, all the henchmen that, that James Bond has to go through to get to the big bad villain, you know, all the, the stormtroopers that you have guarding the Death Star, who, who, their lives don't matter, but Darth Vader, that's the one you have to get to. That's, that's where we want to see this, this restoration. That's the story. We, we allow such violence, murder, and death all around us. And my point is not to justify any of this, but to underscore our own hypocrisy. That's what I want us to, to walk away from this, is understanding our hypocrisy. We have some ways, a way that we have justified violence, the ways that we have justified murder. People love to criticize the, the severity of these laws, but let me paint for you a picture of the Sabbath, how, how it could happen, that there's this slow or maybe sudden erosion of this practice. One generation finally just doesn't pass it on to the next. It's just this weird, archaic thing that their, their grandparents did. And their parents can't even really explain why. You know, people work all the time and they look just like every other country. Their greed, their stomachs decide their time. 
Their success is their own, their failure is their own, they're their own master, or they're their kings. They say that this is the way things have got to be. This is just the hard time that we find ourselves in. And there's nothing that sets them apart. You will not find reflected in the laws of the United States the perfect picture of God. You just won't. You won't find a political party that honors the kingdom above this world. You'll find one that dances around the issues maybe more to your liking than than the other, uh, the, the one that has a priority that lines up with yours. But we will not find a picture of God in the laws of this land but we'll see it in Scripture. We'll see it in Scripture. A general sends men off to death in hopes of maybe securing a piece of land in conflict. We can understand that. We can say that the war is, is just and that it's heroic, or else it's a tragedy or, or a war crime, depending on how we see it. We justify a killing maybe of a, by a woman's right to her body, or the medical conflict making one necessary, or we say end-of-life care is a good thing because, you know, that's respecting their choices. Even whenever we have a DNR command, and we say end-of-life there, that's respecting their wishes. We call it compassion, even good, because we're respecting their choice, their design. And I want to say, let's take that understanding and apply it here and say that what we see in the law is compassionate and good and striking because it respects God's choice, God's design. It doesn't exalt man or the individual. It doesn't exalt the people. It exalts holiness, God himself, and it's uncompromising. And I struggle with this. I struggle with this because I believe that we have allowed such an erosion of values and holiness to come and grip us that the word holiness almost has no meaning to us. I think the fundamental reason we struggle with these passages is that we have a prideful view on ourselves, very prideful view on ourselves, on our culture, on our time in history, on our prestige, on our wisdom, on our compassion, on our morality. And we say that we're good, that we're right, that we understand these things better. And quite frankly, that's just not a biblical worldview. Like I said, this is going to get heavy, and that's why I started with two truths and a lie. Now, if you can be convinced that that breaking the Sabbath is worthy or not of capital punishment, the most astounding thing to me is that there's no debate, there's no shouting unfair or appealing to a higher court when you look at Scripture. It's just the way that it is. Which makes the next thing about this so incredibly astounding is that we are under grace and not the law. God's standard, God's idea of holiness is this is uncompromising, okay? This is uncompromising. This, I set this apart. And if you profane this, it's worthy of death. This is where I am. This is where the good things are. This is where the blessing resides. That's the deal, y'all. If you're going to be my people, this is it. And people are like, that's the deal. That's what we've passed on. That's what we understand. And then we understand we're not under the law, but we're under grace. That God's willing to take offense. That God's willing to take hurt and profanity and to offer forgiveness for it. That he's willing to take that death penalty on himself. (laughs) And he's being able to say, the punishment hasn't changed. That's what we demand. And guess what? It's been paid. It's been paid in full. So we're no longer under law, but we're under grace. So this whole idea of what this demands, what this needs, you could love it, you could hate it, you can struggle with it, but God's word, uncompromising on it, demands that. And it's fulfilled by God's word himself, Christ Jesus. We are all of us Sabbath breakers. We're all of us Sabbath breakers. And I I struggle to say that that's okay. It's not because the law isn't relevant. It's because the law actually shows us the very face of God. But because we're under this grace and because we're not under law, is that being under grace and not under, it underscores, it actually intensifies the law. The same way that the Sabbath underscores and intensifies work, the same way that the command of the Sabbath underscores and intensifies the law in grace itself. It makes it actually more crystal clear, more beautiful if we can see it through that lens. If we see that God made this thing holy, uncompromisingly so, then how beautiful, how wonderful is this grace that abounds. The Sabbath command on our hearts and our souls is stronger because of grace. Jesus revisited adultery and and murder. He made them more severe. 
If you looked at a person lustfully, it's like you had adultery. If you looked at a person with anger in your heart, it's like you committed murder. And what did he say about the Sabbath? He underscored this. The thing is, God never wants anyone to perish. He never delights in punishment. Do you, do you really truly believe that? Because that characterization of God comes up more and more often, and I feel that we, we lose it. Because we think that God's out to get us. God's setting this trap. He, he, wants, he wants to punish us. He wants to find some loophole where he can say, I gotcha. I knew you weren't that good. I knew you didn't really belong in my family. And he wants to kick us out. Do we believe that? Or can we believe that God really, really has made a place for me? People who have that picture of God rail against the Garden of Eden as some cosmic experiment. He knew we'd sin. He set us up to fail. Like, like what, a, what a cruel God this was. And we miss when we read in Scripture that it was this beautiful creation, this gift. He made a garden for his delight. It was God's garden. And he gave us a place in it. He, he offered us a home in it. It wasn't this test for us. We weren't the center part of that story. He's the center part of that story. He loved us. He put us there. I believe this so strongly that God is a good God who gives good gifts. He doesn't delight in evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. And I also believe that holiness, setting something apart, keeping it holy, so that it can be filled with God's blessing, is a very undeniably strong calling for us all. It's not a suggestion or opinion, but by its very nature, it has to be very serious and unyielding that if you crash against this rock, you will lose. There's an old urban legend which I'm sure you've heard, it's often pitted as some brash nation against another one. And I've got an example here using Americans and Canadians, and we'll have, we'll, have the Americans as the, we'll have the Americans as the brash ones. So the Americans say, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And the Canadians retort, we recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans retort, this is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians respond, no, I say again, you divert your course. The Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We're accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. The Canadians say, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> so, this understanding, this might be the best representation I have of this, all right? When we rail against God saying, it's not fair, this death penalty that you're promising, it's not fair. He's God. If, are we going to crash on those rocks? Are we going to say, I'm barreling forth my life, come hell or high water. I'm going to do things my way because I need to do things my way. Because I'm the master of my own fate. Because I'm, I'm the commander of my own ship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive wherever I want to drive. And God is saying, I'm the lighthouse. If you come against this rock, you'll be reduced to rubble. My command to you to steer away from here, to stay clear, to keep this space holy, it's for your own good. You have to understand this. You have to know what you're getting into. Do we understand the holiness of God and what he's about? that we can appreciate and have a, a healthy fear for him, that his commands we don't take lightly, that we don't hear this command and say, ah, it's a pretty good suggestion, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if that really works for me or not. I'm going to take it around the bend once. I'm going to see how well this works. So for most of us, though, I think that the Sabbath command still feels like a burden. Like, we, we can agree with this. We can say God's holy. We can say his days are holy. But not working just seems implausible or impossible. I don't know how I can possibly just stop and cease like we're talking about. It feels like a burn, a charge. Let's pause and, and remark on, on the incredible brokenness of this world that says to stop feels like a burden. <laughs> can you just understand, like, how incredibly broken that is to say that if I tell you to stop, you feel burdened by that. Do you understand the incredible prideful arrogance we have saying that I can't stop, not for a day, or that my whole life is going to unravel? The arrogance we have to take this command and say, it's a burden, I can't do that. How hard is our lives? 
How are we driving ourselves that if we are not respecting God's place, where we put ourselves on that throne? This is what John says in, in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God. Actually, I'm going to read more of this. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is the love for, uh, for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The ways that we have made peace with this world, the way that we have taken the laws of this world above the laws of God, the ways that we have driven towards those rocks, barreling towards disaster, because we don't trust that his commands are not burdensome. We don't trust that his power is sufficient. We don't trust his ways are better. The measure of your love for God is the measure of the joy you get in focusing on him on the day of rest. That's a, that's a hard line. I'm going to say that again. The measure of your love for God is the measure of the joy you get in focusing on him on the day of rest. And I phrase it that way because I think it's so easiest for us to think of rest and stopping and it's about me again. <laughs> Whenever I stop and it's my thoughts and my to-do list starts growing and all these ideas, it's about me again. And I find it so frustrating. I come back to this again and again and again. You're as close to God as you want to be. God is not making himself hard to find. <laughs> He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us people around us. He's not made himself hard to see or hard to know. But we just generally tend to not choose to follow him. We generally tend to choose ourselves. You know, and, and he doesn't ask for, for, for too much there. He, he's not like this, you know, passive-aggressive God. He's just like, well, fine then. <laughs> you know, he doesn't, he's not spiteful towards us. He makes himself available still. We're as close to God as we choose to be. For most people, the Sabbath command is really a demand to repent. It invites us to enjoy what we don't enjoy. And therefore, it shows us the evil of our hearts our need to repent and be changed. That's a hard one. That's a real hard one. For most people, the Sabbath command is really a demand to repent. It invites us to enjoy what we don't enjoy and therefore shows us the evil of our hearts, our need to repent and be changed. Jesus didn't abolish the Sabbath practice, though he redefined it. To, to wrap this up, let's look at Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck ears of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Those who are with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. Behold, there was a man with a withered hand. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which man of you, if he has one sheep and falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Honoring the Sabbath, keeping the command, doing good, understanding grace, understanding what this is about. You know, the, the thing we, we started this, this pre-service prayer about was, was this idea that how, how cultivates the word we've been kicking around and how much work we can spend cultivating. But I, I'm reminded all the time God alone can make it grow. We can plant a, 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 a tree, we can plant a, a seedling, a sapling, we can, we can try our, our best, but God alone can make it grow. Like at, at some point in time, we just have to stop and just be like, I've done all I can do. <laughs> you know, if I continue to attend this thing, if I continue to work this thing, I'm probably doing it more harm than good. You know, whenever our body starts to heal and we have a scab and we, we start picking at it, you know, we're doing more harm than, than good. We're going to make a scar because we just can't let the process go. God is God. God is good. God brings life. The Sabbath is meant for good. It's meant for healing. And yet we, when we keep picking at when we keep making a law, when we keep making about what we can or can't do, when we keep trying to make about something that is about us and not him, we're missing 
the whole story here. So Christ redefines Sabbath. The command always was for our good, for our benefit, for our protection. Like a speed limit or a seatbelt law or not talking on the phone when driving. It's not arbitrary, but it's the prescription for life. It's giving us a gift. It's protecting us and leading us where we need to be. I know we hit a lot of points. I don't know how you feel. I don't know if you feel guilty and condemned and beat up or if you feel encouraged or, <laughs> or what. Um, thank God we are under grace and not the law. But that doesn't diminish his holiness. I think um, where I want us to go this probably is true for all of us. And the question to ask is, you know, in which ways have you profaned the holiness of God? In which ways ha- have you tread disrespectfully? You know, without, without a thought. And it, it's hard because, you know, this is also the God who flung wide the gates <laughs> and he welcomes the sinners, you know. This is the same God who who talks about the prodigal son coming back, still stinking of of pigs and dirt, and says, come home. It's the same God. And I think finding our our way home there and appreciating it, that's what he's always been about. (laughs) You belong here. You're welcome here. We said before, you know, that the call that we often have is, you know, everyone can come. Everyone can come. Come as you are, we say. Don't stay as you are. (laughs) The idea that we have is that we we realize we've got to be transformed. God doesn't welcome us as sinners into his presence so that we can remain sinning. He doesn't welcome us in so that we can remain broken and shallow and prideful and greedy and lustful people. He welcomes us in so that we can be who we are made to be. The Bible says that's who you once were, but you're not that anymore. So in what ways are we still being changed? Not taking that as a judgment, but just taking that as an understanding. Where am I going? Where am I going from here? Am I becoming more Christ-like? More loving? More compassionate? More like my Heavenly Father? Or more like the ways of this world? Father, thank you for your gift, your gift of the Sabbath. Thank you for this wonderful command which brings life. Thank you for this wonderful command which actually speaks of who you are, what you're about. Father, I just pray that we would see you more clearly through it. That we would focus more on who you are and and less on the ways that this world has been broken, the way that this world has demanded our times. You're a good God. And we trust you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.